The following podcast is brought to you by the Bridge Bible Church in Somerset, Wisconsin. For more information, please visit our website at thebridgewire.com. judgments, or at least the, the precursor to the bold judgments. And today we actually get to see them fulfilled. And these are the last of the seven judgments that God brings. And these judgments are hard judgments. They're harsh. They are poured out on the earth and on mankind. And when we look at what God does in these end times in Revelation, there's it causes us to have to wrestle and grapple at times. Like, <laughs> I thought it was supposed to be God's full of grace and love and Jesus, you know, meek and lowly and kind. And, and I read Revelation, and I see wrath and judgment and, and these things being poured out. And it's like, this is the same God. And what we have to come away with is this realization, this understanding that sin is a dreadful thing. That holy, holy, holy God wants man to be reconciled, but sin separates. And sin against the holy God deserves a holy wrath, a holy judgment. Jesus has said in the Gospels that it wasn't his desire, that, that hell wasn't, well, it says in the, in the New Testament that God's desire was not that any would perish, but all would come to repentance. But Jesus said hell was not created for man, it was created for Satan and the fallen angels, but man in his rebellion, in his sinfulness, in his desire to do his own thing and go his own way, will pay the penalty for the wrath that he has incurred for that sin. And we see just the extent of what sin deserves here. And, and so, yeah, we have to wrestle with it. And this morning, uh, 16 is... It is the fulfillment. It is finished, God the Father will say, at the end of the last bowl that is poured out. And for us who have been looking at this and thinking, well, the church is going to be raptured, we're going to miss all this, there is a challenge for us in here. There's a challenge for us because right near the end of this chapter, Jesus uh, puts a puts a reminder for us about being ready, those to be ready. And so that is also for us today. And so that's going to be part of our challenge. So if you have your Bibles, open to chapter 16. It'll also be on the screen. You can follow along. But um, yeah, this one is not, not really fun to think about. But here it is, God bringing all things to their end and the judgment to come. And after this... Jesus will return. We see this in chapter 16, starting in verse 1. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out 
his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was. For you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the, river, on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in, that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found." And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. This is the word of the Lord for us today. So Revelation 16, uh, we see this last seven judgments, these, these bold judgments being poured out. And this is most likely happening within the last weeks or maybe month or so of the seven-year tribulation. So they're just coming one right after the other, right after the other. And so this is bringing us 
near the end, like right up to the moment that Jesus will return. These are the last of these judgments before Jesus comes. We see that Armageddon is being prepared, the great battle that will take place and when Christ comes and lays the army low. So all of this is, is reaching its zenith, its climax. So here in verse 1, what we see is, it says, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So there's a voice from the temple telling the angels to go and pour out the judgment. To pour out all the wrath that has been stored up. All that has been uh, told that would come. So we've seen angels giving warnings in Revelation. We've seen other precursors to this moment. And now he says, this is the moment, pour out the judgment. So this is the closing of the tribulation. Matthew 24, verses 21 and 22 say this, For there will be great tribulation such as not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. When we read Matthew 24, there's different ways that people have interpreted it. And there is a, what I think, a near interpretation and a far interpretation. So we've seen kind of this in the Bible where you see that God works and we see foreshadowing of things to come. And so there's been times in history where people have said, maybe this is where this has been fulfilled, great tribulation. We look at world wars and different times in our history. But this is saying that if these days were not cut short, no one would survive. And if you look at our, our judgments this morning and the wrath that's being poured out, the sea is turned to blood and everything is dead. The rivers turn to blood. There's no drinking water. The earth will not survive in that alone. Great earthquake, hailstones. We see that God has poured out his wrath on the earth and on the, the inhabitants of the earth on this last moment before his return. And so if those days would not be cut short, no one would survive. Not even the elect, those that were on the earth, who had received Jesus, who have been going through the tribulation, even they would perish because there's no way to sustain them. There's no water. There's like just life itself has been completely disrupted and all that would sustain man has been just judged here. So these, these are very severe, destructive judgments. Verse 2 it says, so the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. Now, the first bowl here brings sores upon the people. Now, it's not all the people. Again, it says it's the ones that bore the mark and worshipped him. So he is pouring out judgment particularly against his uh, enemies, those who have rebelled, those who have worshipped the beast, those who have followed Satan and the Antichrist and the false prophet, those are the ones who are being, uh, being judged here in this moment. And God is bringing sickness to them. He is bringing sores that are severe and harmful. He brings this plague. This is not the first time that God has done this in the Scriptures. 
He's, he's done this before. He's worked in these ways before. And, and here's just some listing of things. In Genesis chapter 3, after the fall, God curses the earth and he curses man. And if you think about the curse, he made childbearing difficult. The fall, that is a part of the, the curse, the, the pain in childbearing. Exodus chapter 7, he brought plagues against Egypt. And in particular, he brought boils. In Exodus chapter 9, 8 through 12, it, it talks about how there was boils on those who were being judged in Egypt. In Deuteronomy 28, verses 15, and then in verses 27 and 28, he's talking to Israel, and he says, if you will not follow me, if you move away from me, he says he will cause sickness and blindness and pain and suffering to them. He actually says, I will bring these things to you to get your attention, to draw you back. He says, I will cause these things to happen among you. And so if you think about that, being in Deuteronomy, of Moses giving that to the people saying, hey, we must follow God because part of his way of getting our attention sometimes is to bring sickness into our life or is to bring these, these catastrophic events to bring us back. I mean, Revelation, catastrophic events, trying to get the world to repent and come back to him, right? So Deuteronomy, we read that, and then so when we're in Jesus' ministry in the New Testament, he comes across a man who was born blind in John 9, and what's the question? Was it his sin or his parents' sin? Who sinned? They're thinking Deuteronomy. God caused this, right? Not all blindness is God's. Not all sickness, not all suffering. But God can use it. God does use it. He has used it. And he has warned. So here we see he's brought severe suffering to those who have rebelled. And, and, and he has done it. And so that was the question. People are thinking, hey, is this of God? Did, did God do this one? In John 9, Jesus said, it, it wasn't his God's doing. Actually, it was for God's glory that he removed the blindness and showed his, his kindness and his mercy. First Samuel chapter 5, uh, verses 1 through 12, the Philistines have the Ark of the Covenant in their possession, and God brings tumors. He brings a plague against them uh, because of, of how they are worshiping false gods and that they have his mercy seat there with their false god. And so he brings a plague against them. And the Philistines are like, here, take it back. <laughs> we don't want it. We see in Numbers chapter 21, he brings fiery serpents into the camp. And they bite the Israelites because of their rebellion. And some die. We talked about that last week. They're bitten by snakes that are venomous and, and they die. But he brings a way to be reconciled. Mark eleven thirteen. 13. Jesus curses a tree. And it's a very interesting thing because the tree looks as if it's in season. And he's hungry and he wants figs. And he goes over to the tree. There's no fruit on the tree. And he curses it. And they come back the next day and the tree's dead. And the disciples are like, why did you curse the tree? Like, what's the point? And in the context of what Jesus was showing them, it, it was a picture of Israel. Look, you look alive, but you're not bearing fruit. You're hypocrites. It's hypocrisy. This tree is a symbol. He brought a curse against it, just as he could to those who are not following, who are rebelling. And here in Revelation, God strikes the earth and the peoples of the earth. Why do I bring all this up? It's because 
we don't like this. <laughs> we don't like that God can do this, that he does do this, that he has done this, that he will do this in the future, that he will use these things and do these things to get man's attention, to cause him to repent and return. We like that God is kind and merciful and only is a healer and only a savior and only is you know, justifier. We like all the good things, but you know what? He is also just. He's also the judge. He's the one who brings wrath against sin, and, and it's perfect and holy, and it's hard for us. We grapple with this, and we don't understand God completely, and if you do, you should be up here, and I should sit and listen to you. But we don't understand God completely, and these are hard things. We have to wrestle with it. So we see this balance. So he's not just only healing all the time only. If that is something you've heard, and it's out there, I would just say that you've been hearing a myopic or narrow view of Jesus and his ministry that they're only looking at one aspect. Yes, he is healer. Yes, he delights in healing. Yes, he is healing today. Yes, we come to him, and we see that he not only can remove these plagues, but we also have to realize that he is one who can bring these things. So verse 2, we see him pouring out judgment on people by giving them sickness. Harmful and painful sores came upon them. Verse 3, it says this, the next judgment. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. He turns the sea to blood. Can you just imagine if you lived on the coast, and the ocean changes the blood like that of a corpse, kind of coagulating, getting thick and nasty and the stench that's coming off and all the animals and all the sea creatures and all the stuff in the ocean die and whatever's close to the shore is just going to wash up. There it is, just sitting on the, on the sand and it's like just the stench alone and the, the, the rot and the decay and just the disease that comes with it. Just like the world just as it is known, just changed in a moment as the sea has turned to blood. It's a, it's a, just an awful, awful thing to try to imagine. But here God brings this judgment by striking the ocean. Verses 4 through 7, it says this, and then the third angel poured out his bowl onto the rivers and the springs. So it's not bad enough that it's the ocean, but also the rivers and the springs well, the, the sources of where all that fresh water's coming out of. So, um, is perch lake fed by a spring? It is, isn't it? Some of our little ponds and lakes around here, they're turning to blood. Why? Because the springs are struck. Some of these areas you're like, well, you didn't talk about lakes or whatever. Well, if it's spring fed, it's going to change. Angel strikes this with, by turning it to blood. And what's going to happen? Same thing that happened in the ocean. All of the, all of the animals in there, all the fish, all the life that was in these rivers, it's all going to perish. It's all going to die. 
So he strikes the rivers and springs, and it reminds us of Exodus 7, 17. It says, thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. So when God brought judgment against Egypt, strikes the Nile, and for that moment of time, he turned it to blood. And here he does it all over the world. The angel strikes the rivers, turns to blood. So we have a big problem. The water source of the world is, is severely compromised. Everything is dying that's in it. There's no water. Now, I don't know about some of the other areas of water. It doesn't really mention it, but I am just imagining that the angel over the waters, as it says here, has struck all the water sources of the world. In verses 5 through 7, there's a testimony that's given. The angel in charge of the waters, he says, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was. For you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. I mean, just these couple of bull judgments alone, and we see this great wrath being poured out. And they say, This is right. They struck down those who came, who preached the gospel, preached the good news, who talked about how God wants to reconcile man, that he was sending Messiah, and then that Messiah came, and they put to death those people. They, they shed the blood of the prophets and, and of the saints, those who would give testimony of God and, and those who would say, this is what God is calling us to, a relationship with him, to be reconciled to him, to turn away from sin and the flesh and the world and from the, and from the evil one, Satan. Turn away from those things. Follow him. Repent. Be restored. And instead of wanting that, they killed those messengers. And so the angel says, they wanted blood. You gave them blood. That's what they got. He says it's perfect. It's right. It's just. We see that from the temple, there's also this testimony. It says from the altar that he, there's also this, yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. This is really the, those coming out of Revelation chapter 6, 9, and 10. It's the martyrs who have proclaimed, uh, how long until we will be satisfied when justice comes? He says, uh, here, O sovereign Lord holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? He's avenging their blood by giving blood. It's a harsh judgment. And this is, this is our Jesus doing this. This is our God bringing judgment against sin and rebellion, against Satan and the Antichrist and the false prophet. Verses 8 and 9 moves forward. It says, The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. 
and they were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. So the angel pours out this bowl on the sun, and its heat becomes very intense. It begins to burn those who are exposed to it. Now, in Revelation chapter 7, when we met the 144,000 witnesses, and they were being uh, called out and sealed by God, it said four angels came and held back the winds of the earth that there was no wind anymore. Now, when there's no wind, you disrupt all the weather patterns and weather cycles. So what's happening, maybe, if that continued, if, if he has stilled the winds, then that means only over sources of water do you have water. That's where the water cycle's happening there. It, there's no winds to carry moisture over. We don't have the rolling storms that come through the Midwest. That all stops. And you only have water in isolated places. And now the water's been struck. But if you have no wind, if that continues, the heat becomes intensified. Doesn't a good breeze, you know, you're out at the beach, you're enjoying it. It's a hot day, and then you get that breeze that just comes across. You're like, oh, I could be out here forever. And then you're out there way too long, and you come in, and you, you look red like a lobster. You know, you're just, I should have put on more sunscreen. And you get to laugh at those who, who like, missed an arm or something. You know, like, they're good except for that one spot, you know. We think about, like, sunburn and that heat and all that and the breeze. Oh, that's so good. But if there's no breeze, the, the intensity of the heat, I mean, the earth is soaking up the sun and radiating it back. And God cranks up the sun, makes it hotter, and it's burning them. Like, it's burning as it's coming down. The heat is intense. It's coming up off of the ground. It's, it's miserable. They're suffering, and people are being severely burned. Some have looked at this uh, as far as being a, a, a prophetic word fulfilled out of Isaiah. Isaiah 24, verses 5 and 6, and says this. It says, The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse devours the earth. And its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. And further on it says in Isaiah, Therefore the inhabitants of the earth are scorched, and few men are left. So people are perishing under this. It says the earth is utterly broken. The earth is split apart. The earth is violently shaken. The earth staggers like a drunken man. It sways like a hut. <clears throat> its transgression lies heavy upon it, and it fails and it falls and will not rise again. We see what Isaiah has written here sounds much like what we're reading here in Revelation. How does the world rise after this type of judgment? It doesn't. It staggers, it falls, it's scorched, it's under a curse. So Isaiah points to the future of what will happen, 
and also Malachi. Chapter 4, verse 1, it says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day is coming, shall set the day coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. The day is coming. Malachi says the day is coming. When the day of the Lord is here, the day is coming. What? The earth will be like an oven, hot, intense heat, and he is scorching them and burning them. Many will perish. This is a result of of God's anger towards sin and and it's and their result what happens with them is they're going to just you say God you know we were so sorry we we shouldn't have done this we should have followed you no that's not their response at all their response in verse 9 says that they had cursed the name of God who had the power over these plagues and they did not repent and give him glory. Again and again, God's like, return, be saved, be reconciled. The 144,000 preaching the good news, preaching the gospel. The Messiah is here. He will, re- he will save all who will repent and come to him. And we also have to remember that the tribulation is for the fulfilling of Israel to come in. So Israel's coming in, and Israel's coming in, and they're receiving Jesus as Messiah. At the same time, Gentiles are hearing the gospel and being saved, but many, many, the vast majority, do not turn. They do not repent. They worship the beast. They take the mark, and their hearts are hardened, much like Pharaoh in Egypt. We see that they curse God, they curse his name, and, and then they do not repent, and they do not give him glory. They look at their circumstances and say, this isn't just, this isn't fair, God's supposed to be loving, God's supposed to be merciful, I can't follow that God, who wants that? And then they just go on and on and on in their own self-justification, their own desires, and their own hardness of heart, and they say, I will curse that God who brought this judgment, who had power over all this. He could have stopped at any time. He could have brought relief at any moment, but he didn't. So I can't follow him. We hear that on a lesser scale today, don't we? People look at the world that is broken. They look at the problem of pain, the problem of sin, and they say, well, God could stop this at any moment. And since he didn't, I can't, either he doesn't exist or I can't follow that God. And God says, no, this is the state of fallen world in sin that is trapped in sin, and I have brought a way of salvation to come back through, through my son, Jesus Christ. And these things God uses to get our attention, to say, hello, I'm here, I'm real, and there is a salvation for you. Just come and turn. And man in his hardness says, no, I will not. Verse 10 and 11, it says, the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast. And its kingdom was plunged into darkness, and people gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. So you have the majority of the world just being burnt up, and then this angel comes, pours out his bowl 
on the throne of the beast where the Antichrist is and the false prophet is, and they are plunged into darkness. So it's much like Exodus chapter 10, verses 21 and 22. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. Can you imagine a darkness that is felt? Like, it's, like, have you ever gone down into the caves, like, to go see, and they're like, all right, everybody, look how beautiful this is, because they have it all lit up, right? And then at some point in the tour, you're down in the caves and the caverns, and they're like, now, everybody stay really still, you know, don't get afraid or whatever. I'm going to turn off the lights. And the guy turns off the lights. Nothing. You can't see anything. Like, hand in front of your face. Like, you can't see, like... And then you sit in that long enough, it's like, oh, I feel like there's a weight on me. Like, man, this is not comfortable. I don't like this. Like, this whole sense of seeing has been taken, and like, and all of a sudden, I just feel this weight. It's a darkness that is felt, and he plunges the throne of Satan and the and the beast and the false prophet into darkness. He plunges this this city into darkness, and the people. It says here that they're gnashing their tongues and they're in anguish. I mean, it's okay when the power goes out and you light candles and, you know, play board games by candlelight and stuff. That's fun. But this is a darkness that you're groping around. You can't see anything. You can't manage life. And it's prolonged. And before long, you just start going mad. You're like, I cannot handle this. So outside the city, people are being burnt up and scorched, and supernaturally, he plunges this one into darkness, and they're just all groping around, and they're, and they're gnashing their tongue, and they're angry at God because they have sores on them, and they're suffering, and now they're in darkness, and so instead of repenting, they curse God again for their pain, for their sores, and they don't turn to him. I think it is a literal darkness. I think it's much like Exodus. Some have said that this darkness could be figurative, like it's more of the, the, the destruction. It's, it's foreshadowing the destruction of, 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 of the city, like the darkness is internal and it's causing strife and turmoil and people are suffering because all of the political systems are falling apart and things like that. It's, it's, it's a, a thought that is there. But I think it is <clears throat> a literal darkness. I think what's symbolic about this darkness, though, would be Matthew 25, verses 29 to 31. Jesus says this, For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. I think this is a precursor to that moment when Jesus comes and makes judgment and casts people into hell. Where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
this literal darkness that they're seeing is like Jesus saying, this is just a taste of what is to come, where you will be cast out and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, gnashing of the tongue. So what I think is symbolic there is that he's showing them what is about to happen. So this result, again, they, they blame God and they don't repent. And we move on to the sixth angel in verse 12 through 16. It says, And the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. And then Jesus has this said in here, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. Verse 16 comes back to the assembling, it says, and they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. So the sixth bull is a drying up of the Euphrates. Now, I, I think the Euphrates has been struck, and its, its waters or the blood that is there is all dried up, and it becomes uh, a, a highway for armies. That's part of what God is preparing. He's actually preparing a, a a highway for them to come see the kings. So you have that one world government. They have given the Antichrist all the authority and power. And so now he sends out these demonic spirits to, to persuade those kings to send your army, send your people, send your military. Send them here. We are going to destroy these people of God once and for all. We are going to assemble at this place that is called Armageddon. Verse 14 tells us that they're assembling here for this great day of God the Almighty. So the world is assembling to do battle against God's people. But in reality, they're assembling to do battle against the Lord himself. It's, it's the day of the battle against God the Almighty, not against his people. Verse 15 we see here this statement from Jesus. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. So Jesus uh, here is repeating to John something that he had said back that we've read in Matthew 24, verse 43. And it says this, but know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. And so the idea is Jesus is returning like a thief. He comes like a thief. And Paul even talks about this end of days and the return of Jesus being like a thief. First Thessalonians 5 verse 2, it says, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in the night. Where did Paul get this? He gets this from the teaching of Jesus, where he's saying, I am coming, but it will be like a thief. So Paul is telling the church again, hey, Jesus will come and he'll be like a thief. We need to be ready. We need to be prepared. We need to be watching. 
We need to watch our life and, and our conduct and what we are doing. We need to be ever ready to receive him. So the warning here that Jesus gives in Revelation is to be clothed. He's saying to them, to be clothed. So awake in the, in the garments given by Jesus as a believer, Galatians 3.27. It says this, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So we are clothed in Christ in salvation. In his righteousness, we're clothed. So the first part of being awake is like be in Christ. Like repent, come, know him, put on Christ, be in his righteousness, be, be changed and transformed. But then it's also being awake in this sense that we're clothed in the practical holiness of living for Christ. Ephesians 4, 20 through 24 says this, but that is not the way you learn Christ. So he's talking about a contrast. You don't act like the world. Assuming that you heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off the old self, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So Jesus is saying that I'm coming back. It's going to be in a moment. It's going to be very, very soon. He says, but be ready. He's telling them to be ready, to, to be in Christ. He's also saying to be walking in holiness, be watching your life, be looking for his return. He says, otherwise the people are naked, they're exposed. Reminds me of the parable in Matthew 25 of the ten virgins, verses 1 through 13. It says this, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a cry. Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast. And the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. So here we have ten virgins. And they're waiting for Jesus. They're waiting for the bridegroom. Jesus says the bridegroom's going to come. And it's going to be like a moment, like a thief in the night. Someone's going to announce his arrival, and you need to be ready. And here these uh, five have oil. That is the Holy Spirit. That is five that have been redeemed, that have accepted. They're ready for the Savior. They're ready for His return. There's five who 
have not received God, who have not made themselves ready, who have not been clothed properly. And so when the moment comes, the ones who have oil say, I can't give it to you. And they're ready to go. You must go and get it. You must go be prepared. You must put on Christ. You must receive oil. That's what Jesus is talking about there. And so you have these others who are away. And so then at, at the end, it's too late. That's the point. It's too late. They, they, they come, it says here at this moment, but yet the bridegroom has come and judgment has come. This is set in the chapters of judgment and the last things, the last days. Jesus is giving these parables. And so they're, they're saying, we're ready, we're ready. And he says, it's too late. I've shut the door. Judgment has happened. You have not been ready. You were found without oil or without forgiveness. So they are shut out. They were to be ready. The church is to be ready. We today are to be ready. So we see that Jesus gives this warning as they're heading towards Armageddon, saying, Behold, I'm coming. Get ready. Get ready. Make sure you're watching. Be alert. We read here at the end about this great earthquake. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumbles, peals of thunder, and great earthquakes such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. That's a, that's a great earthquake. It shifts the whole world. All the plates shift, and, and everything changes in a moment. This great earthquake comes. The, the, everything is shaken. Hebrews 12, 26 says this. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. He pours out the bowl into the air. This is a judgment. Heavens and earth will be shaken. That which cannot be shaken will remain. That is God in the heavenlies. But everything else, creation, is shaken like never before. Babylon, the great city, splits into three. The other cities are destroyed. Islands disappear. I mean, you can only imagine the tsunamis of blood because it's not water. It's been changed into blood. You can only imagine. Islands are gone, and the mountains are laid low. Isaiah 40, 1 through 5, say this. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, 
and the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Every eye will behold him when he returns. A great earthquake lays everything level. The Euphrates is a highway for the enemy to assemble. God creates his own highway and says, here I come. And he lays everything low. And he says, here I come to be seen, to be marveled, to be in awe of, to come and bring judgment. Isaiah points to this as well. We see this of the coming of John the Baptist and the person of, uh, uh, of the spirit of Elijah, the one calling in the wilderness. Uh, you know, but here we see this where he's saying God is coming and everything will be made ready for his return. Every eye will see him. And the beginning of that, Israel has been brought in. Can you go back to the first slide of Isaiah 41 through 5? Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended. Battle of Armageddon is about to come. They're going to fight God, not Israel. And he is going to put an end to it. Their warfare has ended. They do not need to fight anymore. And, and their iniquity that they have been building up, God has brought all that against her that was needed. The Lord's hand has been moved against her, but at the same time now she has been restored and built back and brought in, and she has comfort. The Lord, the Lord of his chosen people, Christ coming back to his people, bringing comfort and salvation, not just for us who have received him, but to the chosen ones. The, the Jewish people will receive him, and he will bring comfort, and their warfare will be ended. You see great hailstones, 100-pound hailstones falling from the sky, and they're falling on the people. And the people curse God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. So we see a hardening of hearts, people not turning, not coming to the Lord, and they are they're being dealt with in their sin. One last thing to note about this last judgment, about it being a bull being poured out into the air, is I think it's a judgment that actually points to judgment of Satan himself. Ephesians 2 says this about, did I give you that? He's the prince of the power of the air. Well, Ephesians 2 says that Satan is, in verse 2, that he is the prince of the power of the air in which we have followed in our sin. Where's the last judgment poured out? It's poured out into the air against the prince of the power of the air. And Jesus, or not Jesus, but the Father says, it's finished. All of it's done. It's fulfilled. It's complete. And he's made it ready for Christ to return, for his son to come in victory. So for us, as we look at this, we just see, <laughs> wow. That's, I mean, it's like, this is serious. What do we do with it as the church? Well, we, we look at what Jesus says here, and we take that to heart. Verse 15, he's coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake. Church, stay awake. Be in Christ. 
Walk in holiness. Walk after his ways. Look for his coming. Look for his hand to move and, and, and be ready and tell others to be ready. Tell them to get oil for their lamps. We are to be about telling people that there is a God who is wanting to reconcile us before this end comes, before it is too late. We are to be busy in our harvest fields. We are to be busy sharing Christ with those around us. If we're living for this world, this is the end of this world. I read just this, this week an article said that the the global community is getting together. The UN's hosting this global get-together. They're going to talk about climate change and all this good stuff about how we're going to take care of the world. And then I read something that was really disturbing. There's going to be out of the UN, there's going to be this delegation coming together of world religions, all holding hands, gathering at Mount Sinai. And they're asking for God's new 10 prophetic words towards man on how to steward the earth, all coming together around this world religion of ecumenism in, in saving the planet and climate change, this climate change religion. How do, you get, how do you get religions that are diametrically opposed to each other to hold hands? Well, let's just all save the earth. Let's just worship that way seems like that's where it's heading anyway. It's going to be to, to no, uh, it's going to be to their end. I, we look at this and we just see God will bring everything to its rightful end. And he will, after he returns, create a new heaven and a new earth that is perfect and beautiful and good. This one is reserved for fire. This one that we're in is reserved for fire. So don't put your treasure here. Put your treasure in heaven where it can't be shaken and it can't be taken. And then when the new heaven and new earth comes, we rejoice in that because we see that that is what God had intended. So church, be awake. Be busy. Stand with me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness, your goodness in the midst of judgment. It's right. It's hard for us to think this way. It's hard for us to, to, to really wrestle with these concepts to us. that They just seemed at odds, but your, your mercy and your judgment are perfect and pure and right. It's holy. And our sin that has grieved you so, so much, you, you made a way for it to be pardoned through Jesus. And so we rejoice in that. We want to sing praises to you because we have been saved. We don't have to worry about this wrath falling on us. But there are others out there, Father, who, who don't know. So we pray as as we just close today's service, we pray that we would take this, this warning that Jesus gives through John in Revelation, that we would be ready, that we would have our garments on, that we would be clothed in your righteousness, but also clothed in holiness, that we would be 
walking after you and, and, and getting rid of sin in our lives and, and walking in holiness and, and newness of life and walking in the new man and the new woman, that we'd be telling others about this new life. Father, we pray that many would come to know you before this dreadful day. In your mercy, would you use us to proclaim salvation to our community, to our loved ones, to our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers? Would you use us? Would we say, Lord, give me the fullness of the Spirit so I can speak the truth boldly in love to those who need to hear? So church, be awake. We pray, God, you keep us awake, that we would be ready. And it's in Jesus we give thanks, in Jesus we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. The Bridge Bible Church stands to exalt the name of Jesus. We seek to be a community that gives glory to Christ above all things and welcomes all people to join us in worshiping Him. If you don't have a church home, consider visiting ours. We are ordinary people who want to live life with authentic faith. For more information on how to get connected, deepen your faith, and experience what God has for you, please visit our website at thebridgewire.com.